Hey there, I'm Corey. This is the official tapes. It's a radio program specializing in the official releases from the Grateful Dead. Every so often we turn off the on-air light and we step into the prod room. A while ago, we talked with the boys with the Owsley Stanley Foundation and their official release of some early new writers of the Purple Sage material. After that, they came out with a real boot stomper of a release with a Commander Cody performance. They are back at it again with a new set called That Which Colors the Mind. Bear Sonic Journals highlighting a very unique show from the family dog in May of 70. The performer is Ali Akbar Khan. Owsley Stanley Foundation, Pete Bell, Hawk, and Starfinder Stanley. They're going to chat about Indian classical music, how it ties into the uh, counterculture environment, a benefit show where the Grateful Dead actually shared the same bill as Ali Akbar Khan and how that show went sideways. And then fast forward to two years to 1970 and the New Orleans bust. Not only did it give birth to some fantastic Grateful Dead lyrics to the song Truckin', but because of uh, the legal problems that the uh, band's sound man, Owsley Stanley, he couldn't quite go with the band for a quick performance to uh, Europe. It was a divine appointment for the engineer, though. He was able to bop into the family dog. Owsley Stanley Foundation is going to break down what all went down that night. It's the official tapes. If you read the liner notes, there's this great quote from Ali Akbar Khan. He says, if you play for 10 years, you may please your teacher. If you play for 20 years, you may please the audience. If you play for 30 years, you may please your guru. And after 40 years, you may please even God. There was a belief that music could not just heal. You know, we talk a lot about the healing power of music. But if you play it wrong, it could harm and that creates a lot of pressure if you believe that you hit the wrong notes, you're going to hurt people. And that was the sort of system and training that he grew up in. I'd start off with the, the easiest shorthand is this guy's the Bach of India, that he is one of the greatest musicians in the world in the 20th century. He was renowned in his lifetime for his prowess on his instrument. He and his father before him and his uncle before him really redefined the way this instrument was played, completely rebuilt the instrument for the modern era, changed its sound, innovated, recorded the first Indian classical music LP, believed in discipline and rigor that was almost superhuman. The level of practice that he put in, the discipline that went along with that. So you have this mix of this capability, global talent, and then you've got Owsley. When you put all that together, uh, you know, we, we feel it's worth taking a deep dive on. Starfinder, I think, summed that up really well in his section of the liner notes when he, he talks about uh, the discipline, the rigor, the great appreciation among, you know, between and among the different skill sets. Well, I mean, I think there's a commonality. There's a certain transcendence of the rigor um, of this music where he became completely transported into that realm of mind that music is. That is very, very much in kindred with a psychedelic experience. And so I think that these two very different worlds actually had a lot of overlap even though they got there from different places. 
you know, and I think Starfinder's piece also mentioned, you know, once you hit that point where you are so good that you are, you know, transforming yourself and the audience or transporting yourself to a different place during your performance, um, you know, I think Bear would call that magic. And that was one of the fun parts of exploring in the liner notes was how these two very different worlds intersected and my father's influences and thoughts about the role of Indian classical music. You know, we wanted to make this incredible music as accessible as possible to an audience that might not be used to it or they're taking a gamble on a music a style of music that they you know hadn't heard before, didn't know much about. And it can be quite daunting when you think of jumping into you know, Western classical music, let alone Indian classical music, there are certain perceptions of barriers to entry. And we wanted to make sure in our liner notes that we broke that down for, you know, largely we imagine that much of our audience are comprised of deadheads. They're, we have deadheads, we have audiophiles, we have kind of more of a mix as we continue to move on uh, with our release schedule. But we wanted to make sure that it was as inviting as possible. Uh, and telling cool stories that are attractive to deadheads and attractive people who you know, aren't deadheads. It gets to this idea that improvisational music is ephemeral. It's played once and it's gone forever. Indian classical music and the Grateful Dead share that, that every performance is worth saving because it only happened once. This music is not alien to a, a psychedelic mindset. And Mickey Hart from the Grateful Dead, he saw a kindred spirit there and championed the cause of Valley Akbar College of Music and the Library of Congress wound up adopting a set of their recordings for its permanent collection of, of special recordings. Again, getting to this idea of the ephemerality of improvisational music. This was kind of the, the soundtrack in the background to a lot of people's psychedelic experiences in the 60s. They weren't just listening to the popular jam band music, they were listening to Indian classical music piece. So th this was part of that soundtrack of the psychedelic experience and experimentation in, in the 60s. Technically, the definition of, of a raga is that which colors the mind. And when you marry that very literal interpretation of the meaning of that word with psychedelic concepts and the whole notion of a psychedelic sound machine that Owsley had, had conceived of, the way that he believed that Indian music had a profound impact on the human central nervous system and the sort of synesthesia that happens, you know, with the, the coloring of the mind through the psychedelic experience and also through what music can do to your mind and, and open your mind up. There were a lot of parallels here, uh, if not synergies, as this thing was coming together and that just seemed like too perfect a title. And very literally, it ties back to you know, our mission to teach about Bear's ideas about sound and one of his recording techniques he believed came from his ability, his um, synesthetic ability to see sound and that because he could see the sound, he could place his microphones and his speakers around the room. So that which colors the mind was very much about Bear's side, about literally seeing the sound and on Ali Akbar's kind side, of course, it, it, it's more figurative. Yeah, I mean, with Bear, he <laughs> he wasn't a true sense in that he didn't see sound all the time, but he did have a particular experience where he took enough acid and the wires in his brain crossed so that he was suddenly started interpreting the audio 
information in his visual cortex and started seeing the sound coming out of the speakers and resonating around the room. He said he was completely out of his gourd, but he recognized as soon as it started to happen, what was happening and that it was crucially important, that this was something that he really had to study and hang on to because it wasn't doing what he thought it would do. And that experience of the seeing the color of sound allowed him to um, develop techniques for amplifying live sound that were really quite different than uh, he would have been able to do without that. started playing in mostly in churches. Why churches? Well, they had great acoustics. And what they found was that um, there were always a couple of hippies in the back of the room dancing. And they had been exposed to Indian music filtered through the Beatles, through the Stones, or they had started to take classes at the college as Ronnie Stanley did. And this following grew. And by the time Ravi Shankar played Woodstock, it had positively exploded. And the way the manager of the College of Music at the time told us, explained it to us, he said, you know, this was the soundtrack of uh, the 60s. This is what you were listening to when you were stoned, frankly, which is um, another one of these pieces of history that for the second generation has been partially lost. I mean, it's you, you see mandalas in the head shop and you know it's part of the mythos, but you you don't see a whole section of Indian classical music and your friends with dead tapes don't necessarily have a big collection of music like this. But when we talked to that first generation, to Vince Delgado and, and others, they said, no, 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 this is exactly what we were listening to. It's not at all unusual that Ali Akbar Khan would be playing at the Family Dog before an entire room of hippies with a light show. That was the most usual thing that, that could be happening at the time. We were initially intrigued that you had this court musician. He was literally, uh, Ali Akbar Khan was the court musician for the Maharaja of province of India. And here's this court musician playing at a psychedelic ballroom. And our initial, we were puzzled, how could this be? And the earlier generation correct us and they said, no, 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 th th this, is, this is not unusual at all. This, is, um, this was our music. It's funny because my mom, Roni, was uh, uh, studying Indian music. She loves Indian culture just in, in general and the philosophy and the music. Uh, she did some studying at the Ali Akbar Khan College of Music. Yeah, she was studying tabla at the College of Music. And then, uh, interestingly, my dad took over the lease on the Ali Akbar Khan College of Music house in the Oakland Hills when they moved to Marin. It was a house that he lived in um, with an assortment of really talented individuals, artists, and, and musicians. If you've ever met Roni, uh, she has endless energy, uh, has always had endless energy. Obviously, 
through her partner, uh, one Owsley Stanley. Uh, she had a very good set of connections with the uh, rock and roll scene uh, in the Bay Area. And you could just picture her organizing this amazing two-day festival where um, Ace of Cups, Grateful Dead, and Steve Miller played on the first day, a benefit for the College of Music. And then the second day, Ali Akbar Khan played with Bahadur Khan and Shankar Ghosh, the tabla player at the time. If I'm not mistaken, the first night was her birthday, was it not? Of course, you know, she, this is what a great way to throw a birthday party, you know, right? Which may explain some of the technical difficulties that were experienced the next day. <laughs> yeah, the first day went off without a hitch. A great concert, well attended, uh, Berkeley Community Theater. Fair brought the Dead's, you know, massive PA at the time. Certainly nothing like the Wall of Sound, but very far advanced from any house PA, PA system back then. And, uh, you know, he set it up, the band played, they left for the evening, came back the next day for the Indian classical music performance. And, uh, you know, as we describe it in the liner notes, Fair uh, <laughs> cranked it up like it was Jimi Hendrix and the it was too distorted and the audience uh, rebelled. And <laughs> Vince Delgado's description of it, you know, them turning around, raising their fists at the balcony, you know, this, <laughs> what, what, how did he put it, Pete? Uh, they, they were demonstrating, man. <laughs> they were demonstrating, man. And, and the new bear and, was up in the balcony as a sound man. Uh, yeah, and, and bear, for whatever reason, wasn't responding. You know, didn't, didn't turn it down. Uh, didn't make the adjustments that you would expect him to make. So the College of Music cut the sound to Bear's PA and plugged Ali Akbar Khan into the house PA and everybody settled down and it went on without a hitch. Unfortunately, we don't have those tapes. It's kind of a testament, uh, what Hawk was saying, to, to the fact that, you know, the 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 bar was high for Bear. Um, and, and you know, he, he was pushing the envelope um, and sometimes that failed spectacularly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we tend to focus on the successes. We haven't found the reels from uh, from that second night. He may have recorded over <laughs> them. Um, and you know, the way the story comes full circle is okay. You know, this is uh, this is a great story of the sound experimentation that went on in the '60s before you had sort of standards. I mean, they were working out the industry standards and exploring new areas and new ways of, of amplifying live concert sound. And he simply hadn't had enough uh, experience and exposure to acoustic music by that point. And by the time you get uh, two years later, he's recorded more than 20 different uh, Grateful Dead acoustic sets, let alone the numbers of acoustic sets that he recorded uh, at the Carousel Ballroom when he was the house sound man. So he's got a, a far broader range of performers and types of music that he's amplified so by the time he gets to the family dog which was a venue he knew really well he nailed it when it worked it worked amazingly well and we have these beautiful crystal clear recordings that come out of his focus on trying to accurately capture the experience that the audience was having at these shows so that he could fine-tune the sound system yeah this is stunning absolutely stunning high quality recording um, that does everything that you would expect or that people have come to expect a bear recording to do, which is to put you in the room. Mm -hmm. 
we don't know exactly how he ended up at the family dog on this particular night. The magic of having Owsley on the soundboard on this night. Bear had a few entanglements that, uh, that prevented him from leaving the state at that particular time. I believe the infamous New Orleans uh, bust with uh, Fleetwood Mac and the Grateful Dead that gave birth to uh, the song Truckin' was that spring. And um, he ended up uh, not being able to travel when the dead went off to their first uh, European dates, so. The family dog was putting on amazing light shows for the time. They were doing experimental things with the way that they did using short films spliced in, you know, sort of art films projected onto the walls, onto the ceiling, you know, the electronic amoebas of swirling light that, you know, you associate with the acid tests. You know, you've seen the pictures of, from the acid tests and other similar events. I don't think any of that was terribly unusual for the family dog. I think it's extraordinarily unusual for an Indian classical music performance. In this strange way that uh, Ali Akbar Khan's music and the hippies' music did share this structural format, this idea of a multi-day performance and a performance that would go on late into the night. For American music, that was extremely unusual. Concerts were timed around babysitters and they would end at a reasonable hour. Well, psychedelic music was not. So psychedelic music was having multi-day festivals and it was going late into the night. So for Ali Akbar Khan, that was not unusual. That was the structure of an Indian music festival because it was devotional, because it was ecstatic it would go on. And so some of these ragas are designed to be played at certain times of the day, um, traditionally. And so you have evening ragas and nighttime ragas. And um, for them to be able to come in and say, 2 a.m. is the morning, we could play a morning raga then, which is something you know maybe you might not always do in a uh, one of those concerts held at a church or to be able to play an evening raga. To them, this format was not at all unusual. So they were, um, you know, what do you say, brothers from a different mother? As we understand it in our research, a hierarchy between the musicians where Ali Akbar Khan was the master, the marquee artist on the stage that night, working with younger artists, Indranil, who was 28, uh, Zakir, who was 19. Most of the Grateful Dead audience would be familiar with Zakir Hussain and the son of the great Alaraka, uh, both tabla players, tabla masters. Uh, this is very early in Zakir's career. Uh, again, 19 year old playing with a master like Ali Akbar Khan. It was part of his essentially, uh, I'm probably probably not the right word to use, but apprenticeship. Um, uh, both Indranil and Zakir were students uh, at the time. Uh, the music takes an incredibly long time to master. Uh, but I thought the most interesting thing was uh, descriptions of Ali Akbar Khan's demeanor throughout. I mean, this is a uh, scotch and cigarettes kind of guy who believed that you, you know, playing under the influence of psychedelics, you couldn't possibly play this music well under the influence of psychedelics. And yet he fit right in to the extent that the audience was very receptive to the music that he was playing. Nobody was rude or um, behaved improperly. They all were grooving to the sort of same vibe. And, you know, he did his thing. He lost himself in his music the way he does, whether he's in a church or whether he's at a three-day festival in India. And it all, he just, you know, uh, like we say in the liner notes, uh, the quote, uh, let the music do its thing. Uh, he provided the music, the music did its thing, the people did their thing, and they all got along great.
everything you see in the liner notes reflects sort of our curiosity about a form of music that, you know, we've always appreciated the sound. It sounds great. It's very inviting to us. We get it. We feel like we get it, but we don't understand it technically in the same way. We did a lot of research, uh, listening to a lot of Ali Akbar Khan's albums and trying to see how others wrote about the separation of the sections of each performance. And, you know, we are by no means experts. Uh, we had great tutors in Alam and Manik. Then we worked extensively with two of his children, uh, Manik and with Alam, on researching and learning the family's story. I don't want to get terribly out of my depth, but to have somebody like Alam and Manik walk us through it was incredibly important. And we just tried to convey all of that information that we got and that we found amazing and just eye-opening and inspiring uh, to put it into the liner notes. And part of that was to break out the sections so that you could sort of track the changes. And uh, a lot of Indian music in my collection, not from Ali Akbar Khan necessarily, don't have those section breaks. And we didn't put them in to the, you know, break them like tracks on, a, on the CD. It's just one track. But we put the guide to that in the liner notes so that you can see where the alap ends and the seven beat rhythm cycle uh, comes in or the 16 beat rhythm cycle comes in. So you can fast forward to that and sort of see what we're talking about. Or when Monik in the liner notes talks about the Jala section and the, and the unusual approach to it that his father took on this recording, you know, we've got a pinpoint you know, in the liner notes where you can fast forward to that point as well, because it's all part of trying to understand and educate and learn at the same time. And it's, it was what was fun was to be both student and teacher in the context of this liner notes. You know, we have to put out this, this package that is going to make sense to people. And when in doubt, <laughs> the Owsley Stanley Foundation is always going to err on the side of uh, more is more. <laughs> so imagine us taking these tapes to the family and saying, will you bless these? Her stomachs were in our throats. Yeah, they, they had, did not have this recording. Uh, they were not aware of this recording. I mean, it basically sat in Owsley's vault for 50 years. But, but graciously, they blessed the tapes and said, you know, yes, we would, we would like to see these come out. One of the, you know, the gifts that we're trying to bring back is to you know, rediscover these, these events and reintroduce them uh, to our collective memories. So in the liner notes, they share, uh, they, they wound up being our guides to learning about Indian music because we ourselves weren't particularly familiar with their tradition. Like most people of this later generation, we knew it, the tradition mostly filtered through popular music, through the Beatles, through the Rolling Stones, but they were gracious enough to walk us through the, the art form, to explain the movements of a raga, to explain that unlike Western classical music, it's Indian classical music is closer to Western jazz, that it's about having a loose structure with improvisation inside of it. So they taught us about the art form. And then they also walked us through the story. They taught us all about um, their father and their grandfather, who were these absolute giants of um, Indian music and talking us through that extraordinary story. I encourage anybody, uh, if you're in San Rafael after this miserable pandemic is over, uh, to go and visit the college Spend some time in their listening room. It's quite comfortable. Uh, put on a headset and just lose yourself in 
They're rigorously documented, painstakingly pieced together. Every piece of information that would go along with the piece of music that was being played. They've got both video, they've got you know everything, of course, uh, audio. And there was a lot to learn. And Ali Akbar Khan had made the decision in his lifetime that he wanted people to be to come to this space, to listen to the music in this space and sort of make the journey as opposed to just having a button click on, you know, online where anybody can access it um, from afar, that there's a, a level of engagement that comes from that. It was very instructive, particularly two and a half years ago, based on where we were in our evolution, to go and talk to them, even if they didn't bless the music, even if they said, you know what, we'd rather not release that, to learn from them about their approach to archiving. So there, was, there were a lot of, of great connections for us in this relationship. Oh, yeah. These liner notes, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. The amount of research, the amount of transcribing of all of the interviews, the round after round of editing uh, to get it to fit. <laughs> you know, what the one thing about these releases, uh, we really hope that people do dig into those booklets and, and read through the liner notes. We, we put a lot of energy into trying to create a package to go along with the music to really um, uh, help support and uh, and expand what these sonic journals really are. It makes for rich storytelling and the performance is exceptional and the sound quality is a downright miracle for a 50 year old tape to sound this good. So it was exceptional the first time I listened to it on the flat transfer. I was in an empty house with my stereo system. No one was home. I start listening, I've got my notebook, I'm taking notes. There's a cough and I turn around because I thought somebody had come into the house. That's how clear these tapes were. I mean, Doc Watson, same deal, right off the flat transfer. You know, I was driving to Fairlywell and popped in the CD uh, that I just received uh, of the flat transfer for the Doc Watson, and I just about drove off the road. I'm like, oh my God, this is this is just a miracle of sonic quality. You know, you get a lot like that, and we're gonna focus on that kind of stuff for our releases, but not exclusively on that stuff. There are certain things like the new riders that are absolutely an historical puzzle piece that we felt needed to be put back on the table. We had read various articles and blogs for years about the new riders, you know, what happened between May 1969 and the summer of 1970. You know, scholars have thanked us, uh, diehard fans of New Riders have thanked us for that, for filling in that puzzle piece. Yeah, I mean, that we really hope that we can do that. We want to cross-pollinate our various uh, audiences so that they can appreciate all of these different gems. There's, there's so many different types of music that we have in, in Bear's archive. That's the trick is getting people to say, hey, what is this? Okay, the uh, Owsley Stanley Foundation thinks it's good. I'm gonna listen to it. Yeah, I feel like uh, I, if there's one thing that I, I really hope uh, that someone new to this music or uh, a, dev a devotee to this music, whoever buys our releases, I hope they can recognize for better or for worse that the absolute love and devotion uh, and respect that we have for every artist that we get to work with. And, you know, we imagine what would Bear think? 
would Bear be, be proud of this? You know, would Bear do it this way? Would Bear appreciate the way that we did this? Our website is the Owsley Stanley Foundation.org. So Owsley, O W S L E Y, Stanley, S T A N L E Y, Foundation.org. You know, you can find all of our Sonic Journals releases and various stickers and t shirts and that sort of thing on our website. Our website is the Owsley Stanley Foundation.org. Mm-hmm.